the Forward Together podcast from Hollywood Trust with Paul Gosling and Jared Dean. Welcome again to the Forward Together podcast. My name is Jared Dean and here with me today is Paul Gosling. Paul, how's things? Hi, Jared. So this is a podcast produced by Hollywood Trust and sponsored, if you like, by the Community Relations Council for Northern Ireland through their media grant scheme. And we're looking at four main issues here. Increasing the civic voice, creating a more shared and integrated society, dealing with the past and addressing the constitutional question. So, Paul, for this interview, you met with Andrew McCracken. That's right. And Andrew is the head of the Community Foundation Northern Ireland, which is a grant-making body and an organisation that is attempting through uh, voluntary action, community action, to uh, make Northern Ireland a better place. Andrew talks about a whole range of things, but one of the first things that I picked up on was how he feels class really has an impact here and still being felt as much as the sectarian divide that we have. Yeah, in fact, I think Andrew goes slightly further than that, Gerard, and Mm. says that class is more important than religion in terms of divide. And he's instancing what's happening at schools because schools are divided not simply on a religious basis but also on a class basis because the point that Andrew is making is that whether kids are on free school meals is a a pre-indicator of what type of school they will go to. Uh, basically that kids from poorer backgrounds are less likely to go to grammar school, less likely to do well in the rest of their lives. And that's not based on religion. That's based on class and poverty and family incomes and mm. roles. So, I mean, the, the point Andrew's making is that, yes, we have a divided society, but the division isn't as simple as saying there's two main religious traditions. Yeah. He also differentiates between the community sector and the voluntary sector, where many of us to uh, pair those two together and again he touches on class when he was talking about that yes that's right uh, uh, andrews as i understand it is is sees that uh, the, the community and voluntary sectors are split between those organizations that give resources into the communities and those that uh, are perhaps more middle class where you have volunteers that are helping communities and he sees those as providing different types of uh, qualities and mm. uh, engagement okay and it feels as though we need to be addressing the issues. If we, if we can start addressing issues, then we can find shared ways forward and shared visions for this place. That's right. And I think that is a very valuable insight that Andrew gives us, that actually we need to focus on the issues. Because if we focus on the challenges we're facing, in particular around middle, mental health, mm. if we then actually that's a shared experience across whether those divisions are based around class or religion, those those same challenges present to society as a whole. And we're then focusing on the challenges that we share rather than the divisions that obviously divide us. Okay, well, let's hear the interview that you had with Andrew now. How do we strengthen civil society in ways that enable us to make progress? Yeah. So my day job, Paul, is I look after the Community Foundation for Northern Ireland. And we, uh, we're about connecting people who care the causes that matter. And what that means for me in Northern Ireland is whilst there's the really visible gap between orange and green, the more fundamental, more important gap is the gap between rich and poor and the bubbles of society that we live in. And very often, I am working with people who have wealth and resources and who have a sense of there's something 
I want to do, something I want to help, some bit of society that I want to affect, but recognize that they live in a bubble that's really isolated from the problems and issues that affect other people in society. So for me, the thing I really care about that's part of the answer to that question about how we strengthen civic society is how do we create meaningful bridges and relationships between those bubbles that we all live in and the, the Brexit world and the Trump world seem to me to be visible manifestations of the fact that we're that there's a lot of people who uh, are not from the wealthy bits of society who feel isolated and marginalized and in their own bubbles and are trying to find their way to make sense of that and find a way out of it. What do you think? Ask me more questions about it. Well, I mean, do, is your experience of the community sector that it, that it is cross-community or is it mono-community? Uh, so do you mean it in like the in, traditional Northern Ireland terms? Yeah, cross exactly. Community? Well, um, broadly, but yes, that's specifically uh, that. Well, uh, so I, I'd first answer the question in terms of community like class, that the... Uh, I came to this job four years ago after working in London for 10 years and I really have noticed there's a very strong narrative here that splits the community sector from the voluntary sector kind of along class lines. That Explain the, that a bit. Sure, that the community sector is, inverted commas, it's complicated, but working class communities doing yes. things and the voluntary yes. sector is... Uh, middle class people, sometimes middle class people doing things to or for working class people. So those are some of the interesting divides that to me are more interesting than the traditional sectarian divides in those sectors which I'm sure you could draw a map over and put in place. Uh, but the, the questions about how do people with power and money and influence really have a positive impact on on and with people who are marginalised and vulnerable and on the edges. Those are the bits of stitching together society that I'm really interested in. So that's in everything from what good community development work looks like to the recent the Stacey Dooley comic relief conversations about when is somebody somebody helping and when is somebody a saviour coming in to remove independence and create dependence. And one of the reasons why I asked the question is because it was suggested to me that, for example, women's groups across Belfast are organised, every single one of them pretty well, on the basis of there not being a sectarian division, that women are working together across the community the divisions. I mean, is that something that, that you're aware of? And, and do you know why that's apparently specific to women's groups rather than other community groups? I think I don't know the women's sector well enough to give a complete uh, to make that judgment, I'm aware of women's groups that are non-aligned and I'm aware of women's groups that are aligned to different, and often who work well together but who still come with a very strong sense of their own identity and culture. Uh, I guess there are, I would have picked other issues where there was less obvious alignment, so groups working on mental health and suicide or uh, groups helping 
deal with health and the, all, all the, the various groups working on different angles of uh, cancer, you know, there's going to be less of that. In a way, what you're saying is that the civic society in Northern Ireland works best where there's a clear shared interest rather than a point of differentiation. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I couldn't argue with that. Uh, and I think our, our challenge like the, isn't, isn't our whole society's challenge to try and articulate what that shared interest is, what that common vision is, that we too easily divide that up into being, well, it's either a United Ireland or a meaning part of the United Kingdom, and that becomes the bottom line of what our shared interest is. But there's a million and one shared interests that we all have that are different from that constitutional issue. I have another, so I have a, your thing about civic society, I have a perspective on that that's about the rich and poor gap, the class gap, about generosity and giving and how we do that. There's also something about democracy and voice that I think is really important there and that the foundation is supporting projects around. So it seems to me that uh, if we want to really transform civic society, the current mechanisms for democracy that we have aren't all the tools that we need in the toolbox. And that's true across the UK when you're voting Conservative Labour, or it seems particularly true here where our voting system pushes us away from that common interest question and into more sectarian camps. And there's all kinds of additional ways of doing democracy that aren't just about the ballot box. So we funded Northern Ireland's first independent citizens' assembly in November. So that's, uh, uh, that's where you get 80 people who are demographically representative of all of Northern Ireland and invite them to take two weekends to be briefed on experts and debate a policy issue and come up with some recommendations in that policy issue. And we were overwhelmed by the response for that. So we used a polling company to help us get our 80 people and make sure they were representative. The polling company wrote to 4,000 people and within two days we had 300 volunteers, people saying, yes, I'll set aside two weekends of my time to do this. And when we, uh, and when we had people participating in it, it was, a, it was a debate about healthcare and the fact that we're all getting older and there's not going to be enough money to look after us. So really, tricky things they were wrestling with. But the process feedback from it of people saying, we were able to do it. You could stick 80 of us from all kinds of different backgrounds, politically in class, into a room, and we were able to have a meaningful conversation and come up with some recommendations together. And it was bloody hard work and took, uh, you know, it wasn't easy, but we did it. For me, that there's a transformation of civic society there that's giving people the confidence that we're able to participate and to make decisions together in a way that isn't about fighting the old political battles. And that's a very important point you're making there because clearly citizens' assemblies have been very helpful for the Irish state to work through really challenging issues and they've been resolved with apparently you know, pretty well-mannered conversations, even though they're, they're incredibly difficult ones. Um, it's been suggested to me that in Northern Ireland, the 
best approach for citizens' assemblies might be at more of a micro level to deal with particular conflicts perhaps around interface areas and so on, rather than necessarily on, on big scale like social yeah. care. I mean, yeah. What's, what's, your, what's yeah, yeah. your feeling about that? So, uh, what a citizens' assembly is, you could define it a whole bunch of different ways. I, I think if we took one element of that, which is that element of it's a randomly selected group of the public, inverted commas, whoever that public is in a scenario, uh, who are ran randomly selected in order to be representative, who are then told, right, you go solve this problem on behalf of the whole community or bring us back a recommendation on behalf of the community. Absolutely, I think that's a tool that can be used locally as well as nationally to solve a problem. The, the model of citizen assembly that we did is really expensive and so it wouldn't, it wouldn't necessarily be the most sustainable way to work out how to run 100 of those over, across Northern Ireland. And that was financed by yourselves, was it? So we put some money into it and we found some other funders to put some money in as well. The other point you touched on about democracy is also incredibly important because there is a perception that much of civic society is perhaps a bit cowed by fearing to be too unpleasant to the major parties, too critical of the major parties, and there is also a sense that they are dependent on funding for approval by the big parties, so therefore can't be challenging, and on a more micro level, there's a sense that the major parties seek to dominate and control some of the community groups. Is, uh, is that a perception that you think is reasonable? Yes. Uh, I think perhaps partly because of malign intent, but probably more because Northern Ireland is a very public sector dependent economy. So it was an absolute revelation to me coming here to realise that of the third sector, independent charities and community groups in Northern Ireland, between 75 and 80 percent of their money comes from the government. And, there, and when I realised that, it made real sense to me of the typical conversations that I hear meeting other charity chief executives or meeting community groups that were obsessed with the public sector because that's where a lot of the money comes from. And so there there may sometimes be the malign intent to try and oppress and control the community sector, but what there, what there definitely is, is a sense of, listen, these guys are the people who our money comes from, so we need to understand and influence and talk about where the latest package of funding is coming from. Uh, and if you believe, as I do, that the third sector is primarily civic society independently self-organizing to deal with problems whether the government thinks it's a problem or not then there's there does seem to me to be a, a kind of gray oppressive overlay of the fact that so much of that is funded from public money and it's why i really care about getting independent money into that sector to allow people to say okay well, we're going to do this because we think it's a problem and we're not going to wait until the next round of funding from the whatever council is giving money away. Which leads us on to the next challenge which is how we create our move towards a more shared and integrated society. Yeah and again I my gut reaction to that question is to say integrated is about 
mixing people from different backgrounds across wealth and class, as well as what we immediately think about integrated, about being Protestant Catholic mixing. And there, the education system is just a massive issue that, uh, that we need to solve, that at the moment the, the tran informal transfer test system sorts kids based on whether they're rich or poor and puts the richer kids in one set of schools and the poorer kids in another set of skill, schools. In other words, there's two sets of integration problems, challenges at school. One is the religious differentiation. The other is that broadly wealthy middle-class yeah. families get their kids into the grammar schools and the poorer kids go to the non-selective schools. And with all respect for the people working really hard on the Protestant Catholic issue, if you gave me a thousand pounds to do something about those problems, I'd put it onto the class issue, the rich and poor issue, because it gets even less of a time in the spotlight. But the, the numbers, I mean, the, one of the biggest predictors, choose a kid at random and say, I want to work out whether that kid's going to go to a grammar school or not. If they're on free school meals, they won't. that's the biggest obvious thing that you can point at to say whether they're going to go. And that is not right. I don't believe that if you happen to be in free school meals or not, it makes you more or less intelligent. And I grew up in brilliant, lovely middle-class Bangor and went to a grammar school, went to a lovely university in England. And I'm now faced with decisions about where I send my own kids and the overlay of the individual complexity of navigating this terrible system with your own kids and the strategic perspective of this system is just wrong and I'm endorsing it by even participating in it, I find completely overwhelming. And I don't, I don't have the answer to that, but that uh, integration and education, integration of all sorts and education seem to me to be key. And do you think that integration in education is far more uh, an immediate necessary challenge for us to deal with rather than with housing, for example? Uh, I, well, I feel it most viscerally at the moment about education because my own personal experience and my own kids. Uh, I, uh, when I think about housing, it immediately makes me think about just how we manage where money flows, money to house, to how we do social housing, to how we do housing, to how we decide what doctor's surgeries to have, to how we decide what leisure centres to have. The decision-making that is naturally sectarian, because our politics is naturally sectarian, tends to mitigate all those decisions to be about one community winning and one community losing, and that then goes to the heart of integration. So. Yes, housing, but then yes to those systems that we currently manage as being systems that are about being orange and green. And how can we get more normal politics, whether that's local council or whatever Stormont-related government we have, to try and get to the root of that. Now, we're sitting in Belfast. I, I live in Derry, so my understanding of the residential areas of Belfast isn't great. But my perception is that there's much more mixing within the middle class areas. And so that plays into your view that a lot of this is actually a class issue because yeah. the areas that are most segregated would yeah. be the lower income working class areas. Yeah.
So that's the challenge in your view as much as anything else. Uh, it, uh, I just, po poverty, issues of poverty, marginalization, people who don't have a fair chance in life, those issues are hugely important and personally to me much more important than issues about identity and constitution. And there's a strong argument that they're a big chunk of the root causes of issues about conflict and yeah. Now, one of the other challenges, if we are going to have a society which is working better together, is to how we deal with the past and whether we can achieve reconciliation by dealing with the past. What's your, what's your yeah. view on that? I don't know. And it, I, it's an area that I'd be really wary of speaking into. I don't carry the... A story of being directly affected by the conflict, uh, and so I've huge respect for people who have and who, uh, in, in their own bodies and in their families, carry the marks of what has happened to them in the past, uh, and so I'm really tentative about even venturing into that conversation. I have values that are about people being able to speak truth, people being able to listen. Uh, I, I want us, people being able to have the humility to say, I have a really strong opinion, but I know other people have really strong opinions too. But there's not a lot there that I feel that I've got the right to speak into. And what have groups said that you financed? What have... Say it again. What 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 messages have have groups given that that you that, that you finance? Yeah, uh, we uh, we support groups who try and create space for those sorts of dialogues about uh, where people are able to come together and tell their stories and share. And uh, obviously, we finance groups who have very strong opinions about their own identity, about issues they've faced in the past that they want resolution of. Uh, those groups would say if, if this issue can't be resolved I don't see how we can move forward it's hard to argue with that but when you have a conflicting group saying that and the only resolution is saying well if it goes in my favour then we can't move forward then we quite quickly become paralysed by what we do it's a zero sum game even when we're yeah. dealing with the past yeah I don't I don't know what the I don't don't know what the hopeful message is to bring there. And that perhaps got, touches on something we sp spoke about before about whether in fact as some people have said that the only way we can deal with the past effectively is if people see the the, the shared nature of their experience rather than the differences of causes of particular events. It's it's hard to argue with that but also hard to see how to make it happen. Okay. Now the other really big challenging difficulty we have is how we have the constitutional conversation mm -hmm. in ways that don't cause, doesn't cause new tensions and worsening tensions. I mean, what's your view on that? Yeah. Well, uh, for like a year or two, my view has been let's get Brexit out of the way and then work out how we have those conversations. I've got no idea what getting Brexit out of the way now means. <laughs> and, uh, and we're here on the 
whatever it is, the 21st of March, and things could look totally different on the 22nd, never mind when this podcast goes out. Um, uh, I and the Community Foundation are neutral on the political and constitutional issues, uh, creating space for the conversations and uh, having some kind of shared picture of the society we want seems to me to be key. And that's, that's the kind of work that I'm really keen for us to, uh, to support, is where can we allow people to come together and say, okay, this is the type of education I want for my kids, this is the type of healthcare that uh, I want to access, this is the type of leisure centres that I want to go to, uh, this is the level of poverty I'm prepared, prepared to accept in society. Okay, how do we move towards a society that's like that? And uh, where we can be creating those conversations, we can be creating something that maybe can transcend the constitutional question, but that can give us some common values and aspirations to go into it. So let's have a vision of the type of society we want to create rather than focusing on the particular Great. community identities. And identities. Yeah. <laughs> okay, thanks to Andrew for taking the time to have the conversation with Paul. So Paul, this is something that's been mentioned by umpteen other people that we've interviewed as the Citizens' Assembly. But interestingly, in Andrew's case, he's a funder of the, the only example of that that we've had here in the North. That's right. And, you know, it's very interesting hearing from Andrew about that experience. And one of the points that he ha- that he makes that we have to recognise is that that style of Citizens' Assembly, the big projects, you know, dealing with the big themes, mm. is very expensive. And that may provide a limitation on the practicalities of doing Citizens' Assemblies on the type of scale that they've done them in the South. Right. But he also said that it was meaningful work and it was hard work but seem to really have an impact on the people that took part. Yes, but I think what he's also saying is that perhaps smaller projects might be more practical going right. ahead rather than dealing with the big themes. Unless unless we actually had a government in Northern Ireland that was prepared to actually invest in dealing. You know, if we, we on across the border from us, we have the Republic that had a number of big constitutionally challenging issues and it recognised that these would be mired by party political disputes and probably also, to be fair, break up the party political system because those divisions run within the parties not just between the parties and they effectively outsourced them to a representative sample of the public and by resourcing that they resolved issues such as women's reproductive rights and same-sex marriage and they did so in ways that healed rather than created divisions Mm. and I think that's very important to recognise but what Andrew's saying is if you want to do it on the big themes you have to put a lot of money in but of course as we previously heard from Peter Sheridan from uh, Corporation Ireland it's also possible to think about the role of citizens assemblies in smaller projects and the things that Peter was talking about and he was being interviewed before Lyra McKee was was murdered in Cregan but the things that Peter was talking about was whether a citizens assembly in the Cregan area of Derry would be an appropriate way to consider the the grip that paramilitaries have within parts of that area Mm. and I think the point that Andrew's making is that we don't need to think that citizens assemblies are just there for the big themes but they can also be dealing with the the more localized smaller 
geographically yeah. smaller pro- problems. Democratizing our society here. Yes. And another interesting point he made was around how overly dependent, uh, I suppose, the, the whole economy, but in particular the, the community and voluntary sector is on the public sector purse. That's right. We are very public sector dependent in lots of ways. The uh, I suppose, you know, in a sense, that's a product of having a, a, a proportionally smaller economy. We don't have the wealthy people yeah. that can give the donations to into charities here. So we are a, a part of that more public sector dependent. And also it's a, a, a legacy from the Troubles that the community sector kept much of Northern Ireland society going through the Troubles and therefore played a very important role in Northern Ireland. But it does mean that a lot of the activities that society relies on are, are publicly funded and driven by delivered by the community. Yeah. On dealing with the past, he says it's really important that we have truth, and but we also have listening and creating a space for the other. Absolutely. You've summarised it there perfectly. There you go. Nailed it. Good on me. Right, so that's it for this episode of the Forward Together podcast. You can subscribe to this through your podcast app or follow through hollywelltrust.com or sluggerotool.com. Thanks to Andrew for taking the time to meet with Paul and thanks to Paul for carrying out the interview and to Dee Kern and Emer Doherty for production support. All right, thanks for listening. Community Relations Council for Northern Ireland supports this podcast through its media grant scheme and core funding programme.